For the record, too, with the podcast, um, I am going to continue something once I get transitioned on to Phoenix. I don't know what that'll be or exactly how it'll work initially, but um, I've been asked, you going to keep going through Matthew? I don't know what I'll do yet. Uh, first thing I got to do is move, but but I um, I will keep a podcast up. So I don't know how it'll look, what it'll be. It might even be a little shorter for a minute, a little while. Uh, but uh, but there will be a podcast that will continue and will stay up so y'all can stay connected, uh, at least in that way. Um, let me read you guys some. I don't normally just read, but it's just easier. Let me read you guys a little excerpt from church, church history. I know that fascinates you already, but this is pretty good. Uh, the Council of Nicaea was opened in June of 325 A.D., 325 A.D. In the center of the meeting hall, on a seat or a throne, were the four Gospels. Some of the bishops who gathered at the meeting hall looked as if they'd barely survived a battlefield. One was missing an eye, another also with an eye gouged out, dragged hamstrung legs. Still another's hands had been scorched. Others were wore the scars of scourging beneath their shirts. These victims of torture took their places among the hundreds of other bishops. A signal torch was raised, and the hall hushed in anticipation. The most powerful man in the world, Emperor Constantine, entered, walking on raised heels, his purple gown and silver diadem ablaze with jewels. The first Christian emperor was preparing to address the first council. Even two years earlier, this meeting would have been unthinkable. A gathering of 312 bishops from throughout the Roman Empire, summoned and financed by the emperor himself. Only a few years before, these same bishops had been branded criminals by Diocletian. Their gouged eyes, burnt flesh, and slashed tendons bore mute witness to the unshakable loyalty they held to the name of Christ. Men in humble garb with twisted bodies waited to hear what their royally garbed and graceful emperor would say. Constantine spoke. I rejoice to see you here. Yeah, I should be more pleased to see unity and affection among you. Riots had shattered the peace of the empire. Riots over the doctrine of the nature of Jesus. Arius, a priest in Alexandria, this is beforehand, held that Jesus was a creation of the Father. There was a time when the son was not, saying he and his followers, setting their theology to catchy tunes. The first being to be created. Jesus was nothing less than a creature, according to Arius. He was not eternal. Bishop Alexander of Alexandria had condemned Arius's doctrine, saying that Jesus, the word, existed eternally with the father, was divine and could not be created. Alexander and his aid... Athanasius believed that by denying Christ's deity, Arianism threatened the core of Christian faith. Alexander had Arius removed from his post. Arius sought and won support from other bishops of the East, and the conflict was on. Rioting ensued, and now this council had been called at Nicaea to settle the controversy. The emperor felt compelled to step in and restore good, good order. The bishops were expelled, expected to resolve their differences and depart in unity. 
But if Constantine hoped for a swift resolution to the dispute, he was soon disappointed. When Eusebius deduced logically that the Son of God was a creature, logically, he was interrupted by cries of heresy and blasphemy. His speech was snatched from his hands and torn to shreds by bishops who would not allow philosophical arguments to supersede Scripture. Men who had suffered for Christ were not about to sit tamely and hear him blasphemed. From then on, the two sides argued fiercely. Finally, someone suggested a way to break the impasse, write a creed to which all should submit. Six weeks later, several days before the council ended, the statement had been hammered out. The creed affirmed that Jesus was, quote, from the substance of the Father, God from God, light from light, very God from very God, begotten, not made, of the same substance as the Father. Constantine himself suggested the key word meaning of the same substance. But Arius preferred a similar word that meant of similar substance. All but three bishops signed the creed. Arius and the others who refused to sign were banished. In the closing hours of the conference, Constantine, moved by the heroism of those who had suffered for Christ under his pagan predecessor, is said to have caressed their wounds and kissed their empty eye sockets. Their scars bore strong witness that the Nicene Creed was sound. It seemed the issue was settled. But political winds changed. Constantine drifted towards Arianism and sided with the heretics. For two centuries, whoever held imperial power decided the fortunes of the theological people. Lastly here, Athanasius, for example, leader of those who argued for Christ's deity, was exiled five times for his views. This did not alter his staunch support of the creed. He realized the gap between sinful man and a holy God. Only God could bridge it. If Christ were fully God and fully man, he could be that bridge, but not otherwise. He had to be a man to represent us. He had to be God to overcome the infinite infinite gap. Excuse me. Finally... In spite of the power struggle at Nicaea and political battles in the years that followed, the creed of Nicaea, with its clear assertion of the deity of Christ, remains fundamental, which is true, to the church of this day. That's the way it all started. Over who is Jesus, which is the most epic, most important question you will ever answer in your whole entire life. Who do you say that Jesus is? That's been the way we started this whole study, and that's where we are now. Look at Matthew chapter 16, and let's go in here. Verse 1 says, And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, they're not testing him to determine if he's the Messiah. Hadn't he already done a few signs from heaven (laughs) at this stage? Anything he does, they're just going to claim Satan did it. They're trying to get him to just do perform something so that they can say Satan did that, Satan, because they already have done that. They've already done it before. And it's funny that they're seeking a sign from heaven. Basically, they're saying, if you are the son of God, then do this. Who else said that? Satan did, right? In the temptation, if you're the son of God, turn these rocks to bread. And Satan knew who he was. You know what I mean? And Jesus' response is pretty wild here. He uses wordplay. On the Hebrew word for heaven, which is Shemaim, and it says, or that's heavens, but he says, verse 2, he answered them, when it's evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the heaven, sky, heaven is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the heaven is red and threatening. 
You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky or the heavens, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. It's funny. They asked for a sign from heaven. He said, you can read all the signs of heaven, but you have no idea what's going on around you. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So they left him and departed. Um, we've already discussed this. I'm not going to go back over it, but basically this is the end for that generation. The kingdom of God will come to another generation, but it's gone from that one. And the sign of Jonah, uh, I think there's a lot of opinions. I'm not going to go back into that. We've talked about it before, but the basic of it is the picture now is changing to a resurrection, to death and life, to a grave. Verse 5. When the disciples reached the other side, they'd forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These disciples, man. What was he referring to when he says this? You think the leaven. What, what do you think the leaven of the Pharisees is? I think it could be all these things. One thing that's interesting is Mark adds the Herodians. So you have the. Pharisees, Sadducees, and the Herodians, he's saying, beware of what they sow. Those three groups had zero in common. Well, they had one thing in common. That's it. Otherwise, they argued about everything. Sadducees and the Pharisees got along on nothing. And the Herodians certainly were hated by the Pharisees and Sadducees. The only thing they had in common was they hated Jesus. The only thing they had in common was they denied who Jesus claimed to be. And they were telling everybody that. They were changing public opinion. Ultimately, they're going to have the entire city chanting, crucify him. Know what I'm saying? So when he's talking about the leaven, leaven's what you put in bread that makes spreads and makes it rise. That's the idea is that they're, these guys are telling people, teaching people, Jesus is a liar. Jesus is Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Jesus is doing all these miracles by the power of the devil. They're denying who he is. Yes, there's hypocrisy. Yes, there's corruption in those things. But I think the one thing they all three had in common is they didn't believe in who Jesus was. And that, I think, is the context of what he's talking about. So I believe that's more of where he's going. But watch what he says, verse 7. They began to discuss it among themselves, saying, uh, We brought no bread. Jesus is like, are y'all listening to what I'm saying here? You know what I'm saying? They said, we don't have any food. We forgot to get bread. And he says, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he said, yeah, but we don't have bread. Hello. Yeah, exactly. This thing on thing. Verse 8. But Jesus, aware of this, he knows they have no bread. He said, oh, you of little faith. Once again, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? So in other words, they're not directly saying it to Jesus per se. They're just kind of mumbling to themselves. We're going to eat, guys. We didn't bring it. You know what? Did you not pack the bread? You know, so he calls them out and he says, why are you guys arguing about this? You have no faith. Again, faith, especially in this context, is not talking about you guys have the ability to call bread from heaven if you want. That's not what he means by faith. Your faith is able to provide for you. That's not what he means by faith. What does he mean by faith? Trust in him. Trust in him. You still don't trust who I am. How many? Fed, well, let's see. He answers. He says, do you not perceive? Verse 9. Don't you understand? Don't you get it? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000? And how many baskets you gathered? They gathered 12, remember? 
not only provided for the crowd miraculously, but there was a picture there of his provision for the, the nation of Israel. Verse 10, or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered after they gathered seven after that. I went back and looked it up because I wanted to remember. And what it is, is he did that in Decapolis, which is a uh, Gentile area. And there were 10 cities that were Decapolis, but there were seven people groups that lived in those 10 cities. So some believe that there were seven baskets, one for each nation, people group, represented among the Gentiles. So the picture of 12, he was provisioned for Israel, and seven, he was provisioned for the Gentiles. Verse 11, so how is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? How can you not realize I'm not talking about bread? Don't you see what my ability to provide has done here. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, because what they're doing is they're sowing seed about who he is. They're saying things about who he is. And he's saying, don't you remember what I did when I provided all these things, how I did these things? You remember who I am. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. <laughs> yes, it, correct. You know, he said it to Satan, too. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Every word out of the mouth of God. The Pharisees are teaching. There's words coming out of their mouth about who God is. And he's saying, in an illustration of providing bread, he's saying, too, who he is as the word of God. Look at verse 13. Now, when Jesus came... Into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, this place is wild. I haven't been there, um, but history is full of stuff about it. The location is at the foot of Mount Hermon, which is or Hermon, which is the biggest mountain in Israel, the highest peak in Israel. And according to archaeology, the city of Caesarea Philippi was covered in pagan idols, covered in temples to false idols and to false gods. And though there was a large Jewish population, obviously they were pagan in nature and probably Jewish only by identity. And there's a huge cave there that was named after Pan, who is the god of nature. Okay, and Josephus wrote about it. He said this, there is a top of a mountain that is raised to an immense height and at its side beneath or at its bottom, a dark cave opens within which is a horrible precipice that descends abruptly to a vast depth. It contains a mighty quantity of water, which is immovable. And when anyone lets down anything to measure the depth of the earth beneath the water, no length of cord is sufficient to reach it. Frutenbaum added to Josephus and said, this cave was known colloquially as the entrance to the underworld or the gates of Hades. The power of death was in this cave. Jesus literally took his disciples to the gates of hell to ask them, who do people say that I am? So he's standing there, perhaps, when he asked this. Why is Jesus asking that question, by the way? You, th you think he doesn't know what people think of him? I mean, he's obviously heading somewhere. Of course he knows this is about the disciples because they have still failed to understand who he is. That's what he just had this, you know, this argument about the bread twice and now a third time. And he's saying, OK, he brings them to this place, all these idols. 
in this cave with the gate of hell there, so to speak. And he says, who, who is it? Who am I? Who do people say that I am? This is all about the disciples. He knows. He's attempting to teach them something. Verse 14. And they said, some say John the Baptist. Who, who thought he was John the Baptist? We know who thought that. That was Herod, remember? Herod thought he was John the Baptist raised. So some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, which was the person who was supposed to come before the Messiah and pave the way, which Jesus said John was that person. John the Baptist was. Some say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Because Jeremiah always had bad news. And I guess whoever those people were felt like Jesus had bad news all the time. Verse 15, he said to them, okay, but who do you, plural, you, say that I am? So they're walking through answering this. He's asking them questions just like you would if you were sitting down with your young child trying to teach them how to do math or something. You don't just tell them, do this, do this, do this. You say, okay, what would you do next? Okay, what would you move here? You already know. You're letting them walk through it. So he knows it. He's walking them through it. So then he says, who do you say that I am? And it's interesting. He says, say. Not who do you think I am. He didn't even say, who do you believe I am? He said, who do you say that I am? In Greek, that word say means tell. It implies a hearer. So who do you say that I am? Who are you telling people that I am? That's a much different question, by the way. Who do you tell people that I am? Pharisees are telling people who he is, who they think he is. Sadducees are telling people who they think he is. The Herodians are telling people who they think he is. This leaven he referred to, they're all saying it. And he says, who do you say that I am? We all know who they say I am. We know who all the people say I am because they're saying it out loud. That's how you know. But I'm asking you now, you're walking around with me. Who do you tell people that I am? All these guys, these people that are coming up to you and they're asking you. Okay, this Jesus dude y'all are following. Who is he? You tell me, man. Is he the Messiah? Who is he? Jesus said, well, what do you say? How do you answer that? What do you tell them? I mean, Jesus had done miracle after miracle. He had definitely illustrated that he was amazing. But to be a bit fair, Jesus never outright said at this point that he was the son of God. He didn't said it. He never outright said at this point that he's the Messiah. The demons did, but he told them to hush. You know what I mean? They knew who he was, but he told them to be quiet. He called himself son of man. He called himself bread of heaven. He called himself son, the son once, but he never, he he hadn't called himself son of God. He hadn't called himself these things. He claims the kingdom is is a hand, but he's abandoning all of the crowds instead of unifying them to overthrow Rome. He claims, you know, that that the kingdom is at hand, but he's defying all the spiritual leaders that have been holding the kingdom up. At least in the eyes of the people. And he's hanging out with unclean and hanging out with the poor. So I can understand why maybe there's some confusion. You know, they've seen miracles without a doubt. But verse 16, Simon Peter replied. Now, I don't know, did he just immediately quick to the response? Did it was it quiet for a minute when he asked the question? Because he asked all the disciples. They're all they're all there. 
Was it quiet a second or did Peter just pop right off? I don't know. But verse 16, Simon is the only one that speaks up. And you could say it says Simon Peter, but you could say Simon the Rock because that's the context for sure. And that's what the name means. Replied, you are the Christ, the Greek word for Messiah. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, he doesn't just say Messiah here. And he doesn't just say son of God. He says son of the living God. That's the key to this in a sense because that's a little different than what they've said before. In fact, the Greek emphasizes that statement. So it's like he's saying the Messiah, son of the God, the living one. That's what he's saying. You are the son of God. You're the Messiah, the son, son of the God, the living God, the living one. So he's attributing his identity to a character. And I'll give you just, there's tons of verses, but I'll just give you some of them. You can note it. Deuteronomy 5.26. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have and has still lived? So Deuteronomy, that's Moses attributing the living God, that title, to the person who spoke from the burning bush, to the person who was on the mountain to Jehovah, to Yahweh, he is the living God. Psalm 42, 1, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. That's the same kind of language that Peter is using. Peter is calling him, remember, context, there is Caesarea Philippi, all of these gods, Peter is singling out, you are the son of him, this God, Jeremiah ten ten. but the Lord is the true God. But Jehovah, Yahweh, is the true God. He is the living God, listen, and the everlasting king. What do we say Messiah meant? King, anointed one. The person who was anointed is king, anointed king. So Messiah is the word for king. And here in Jeremiah 10, 10, literally saying God is the living God and the eternal king. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his wrath. Thus shall you say to them, the gods, little g, who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding and stretched out the heavens. Peter's pointing to that God in the presence of all these little G gods and saying, that's you to Jesus. You're the son of that living God. Now, Paul almost borrowed the same confession as what Peter made in Romans 1, 3. You don't have to turn there. Just note it. Concerning his son, Peter says concerning, I'm sorry, Paul says concerning God's son who was descended from David. What does it mean that he was descended from David? Royalty. He's the Messiah. He has the right to the throne. So he's almost the same language as what Peter used. Paul says he was descended from David according to the flesh, which meant he was a man. It said, and was declared to be the son of God, same language Peter used, in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, which means he's the living God. Jesus, Messiah, our Lord. Paul, same thing, descendant of David, making him Messiah, son of God, and resurrected from the dead, which means he's alive. He is the living God. Same language. Verse 17, Matthew 16. Jesus answered him. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Again, he says, my Father. And ironically, it's a sign from heaven. 
It's what the Pharisees asked for, isn't it? Show us a sign from heaven. Well, here's one. There's a great truth here. Before I go on, apart from the work of heaven, listen to me, you can't see it. Apart from the work of heaven, I'm telling you, you cannot see him. Again, he's not talking about bread. He's talking about identity here. Go to John chapter 6 real quick, and let me show you, since we're in the context of bread, and who he is, and him telling Peter, you cannot, you know, this didn't come from you. Flesh and blood means you didn't determine this on your own. Your own brain didn't come up with this. That came from God that you recognize who I am. Um, John 6, verse 35. And this has already occurred, so we're turning back in time just a little bit. Not far. This is pretty recently before uh, this moment we were reading in Matthew. But in verse 35, Jesus says to the crowds, he says, I am the bread of life. So he's telling you right there. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have not seen me. And yet do not believe. In other words, you don't know who I am. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So there's one big principle. Circle it in your Bible. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. So if you're coming to him, in this context, it's pretty clear you're coming to him because the Father gave you to Jesus as a gift in a manner of speaking. Verse 39. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Almost sounds like there's two people, but notice he came from heaven here. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So here's another beautiful picture. People talk about, can you lose your salvation? Based on these two verses alone, no chance. Because for one, if you're saved, you're saved because you are a gift from the Father to the Son. And if you are a gift from the Father to the Son, you will come to the Son. He just said it, plain as day. You will. When? I don't know. But you will. Then he says, all that the Father has given to me, he said, I will raise up on the last day. Why will he do it? Because it's the will of the Father. So that means if you come to Christ and you're a believer in Christ, you come to Christ and you're saved, if you could be lost again, then that means either A, God's will is not done, or B, or and B, Jesus cannot accomplish for the Father what the Father wills to be accomplished through him. So you're calling God a failure, and you're calling Jesus a failure. Both of them. It's not so. He said, I will raise them up on the last day. And then it says in verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. Can't be more blunt than that. Verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about Him because He said, I'm the bread that came down from us. So of all the things He said, that's the one that makes them the maddest. And they said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does He say, I've come from heaven? How can you say you came from heaven? We know who you are. We know who your mom and dad are. Jesus answered him, don't grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, I don't care how you read that. I don't care what translation you choose to read it in. If it offends you, take it to Jesus because it's in red. You know what I'm saying? He said it. He said it. Not me. He said it. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Third time he said that. How can you possibly think you can lose something 
without defying Christ on this. He said, I will do that. But he says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. In other words, I don't, hey, I know you don't know who I am. You don't have a clue who I am. I know you think I'm the son of Mary and Joseph. You don't know who I am because the father has not drawn you to me. That's why when Peter makes the confession Peter makes, he says, you didn't learn this on your own. This didn't come from flesh and blood. This didn't come from study. This didn't come from understanding or philosophy or anything else. That's something that God, the Father, drew you to me. He goes on, he says, uh, in verse 45, still in John 6, It's written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Everybody who does. If you hear from the Father, truly know who he is, and you hear from him, you're going to come to Jesus, which that's another great testimony to the Old Testament If you are actually hearing from the God of the Old Testament, he will point you to Jesus. He will. That's what he's saying. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He's seen the Father. He's talking about himself, of course. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Say it again. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, but they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, they have no idea what he's talking about. And i got to give it to them. That's a bit heavy. You know what I mean? But they are like, dude, you are out of your, you are whack out of your mind. You know what I mean? Verse 60 says, even his disciples, some, some of them, not the 12, but he had many disciples heard it. They said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? I, I don't get it. What are you saying? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you, are you offended by this? If you, if you think that's offensive, what if you were to see the son of man ascending to where he was before, which some of them will? It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. So Peter, the flesh is no help. Flesh and blood cannot help you see God at all. The Spirit gives life. You know why the flesh cannot help you see God? Because dead things don't see. Ephesians 2 makes that clear. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But God made you alive in Christ. Same thing here. Dead things don't see. So he's saying right here, he's saying the flesh is no help at all. It's the Spirit that gives life. So the Spirit gives life, and it says, the words I've spoken to you are spirit and life. He's saying, what I'm giving to you is life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe. He knew this. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. This is heavy stuff, people, but it's in your Bible. If you haven't wrestled with it, you need to because it's in your Bible. Just wrestle with it. Don't feel like you have to have an answer to everything, but wrestle with it at least. He says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Okay, that's that's an option. You can either ignore it, or you can wrestle with it, or you can walk away from it. You know, one of the three, if you walk away from it, I'd be questioning whether or not you really know him, ever knew him. He says this, Simon Peter answered him once again, Peter's the man. Lord, where are we going to go? My favorite line in the Bible. You have the words to eternal life. What else are we going to do? Where else are we going to go? And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, what? Did I not choose you, the twelve? And he identifies that one of them has been chosen for another purpose. But the point being that he, he chose them out of that group. Now, 
though there's an act of the Spirit, the Father, to open your spiritual eyes, you still have to respond in faith. And I know we're talking about heavy stuff here. So there's the sovereignty of God, but there's still the responsibility of man. You still have to respond in faith. Jesus didn't just say, hey, all of you guys are saved, so we're good here. He asked them, who do you say, who do you tell people that I am? Now, when Peter responds, he says, awesome, Peter, that didn't come from you. Well, you shouldn't have a problem with this. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ today, if you're saved, you would say something like, it wasn't me, it was all God. It wasn't me, it was all God. If you're saying it was all God, what are you saying? So Peter makes a confession, which it took faith for Peter to say that. But what Jesus is recognizing is don't get proud of yourself, Peter, because that faith didn't come from you. That came from God. God gave you that. But that's a blessing. Don't be don't be disappointed. That's awesome. That's a blessing. Keep in mind that Peter had not seen the defeat of Israel's enemies. The restoration of Jerusalem and Zion, that hadn't happened yet. The exiles, all of them being gathered back into Jerusalem, that hadn't happened yet. Still hadn't happened. The reestablishment of the throne of David, that hadn't happened yet. The institution of the kingdom and peace on earth, that hadn't happened yet. The resurrection of the dead, that hadn't happened yet. He hadn't seen any of that. But he's testified that that's who Jesus is. That's the same thing we do, guys. Y'all hadn't seen any of that. I hadn't seen any of that, but we testify and we tell who Jesus is. And what's crazy is Jesus said to Thomas in John chapter 20, you believe because you have seen, what does he say? Blessed are those who believe and have not seen. You could say, you could plug this right back to Peter's confession about you in this case. About you. You could say, blessed are you, Sheldon. Who have not seen and yet confess who I am. Same thing Peter. He's telling Peter, blessed are you, Peter. It didn't come from flesh and blood. So I could say, Sheldon, why do you believe? Why do you confess that? And Sheldon would have to say, well, I've never seen him. I just know. Well, how do you just know? Well, he came from the Father. It didn't come from me. It, it came from the Father. Look at verse, go back to Matthew 16, verse 18. Because here's where he gets... Some weighty stuff tossed in. He says, and I tell you, you are Peter. Remember, um, he didn't change his name here. We talked about this before. He changed, he changed it a long time ago. He's just affirming it here. He's saying, you are Peter. Or you are the rock. Word is rock there. And on this rock, I will build my church. This passage has been used to argue so many, in my opinion, false doctrines. It's not even funny. Some things are not my opinion. They just straight are false doctrines. Some things we could argue about. But one of the biggest statements he makes is, I will build my church. It's his action. He is stating that he is going to do it. And it's the first time you see the word church mentioned in the New Testament. It's the first time it's there. A lot of people like to say that Israel was the church in the Old Testament because they want to kind of replace Israel with the picture of the church. Popular uh, has come and gone as being a popular trendy belief. And in the past decade or so, it got real popular again. I don't know where it is now. But that cannot be true because right here he says, I will build. So it's future. Whatever he means by church, because this is the first time it's popped up in the New Testament. So whatever he means by church, it's new. 
Didn't say I will continue. Didn't say any of that. He's saying he's going to build it. It's going to be something that's coming. It says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, let's pull this apart because there's a lot in there. Um, first of all, when he asked them, who do you say that I am? He asked all of the disciples that question. And he finishes in verse 20 with all of the disciples. So they're all present. But the discussion here in the middle is between him and Peter. All of the you's there are to Peter specifically. They're singular. So because of that, you pretty much have the foundation of the Catholic Church, particularly the Roman Catholic Church. But the Catholic modern Catholic Church is entirely founded on this chunk of Scripture right here. They believe the Pope to be Peter incarnated peter was the first bishop of rome they say and so the pope is the incarnation of peter that there would always be a succession of peter to rule the church so to speak that's where the idea of pope comes from but let's pull some observations from this that we got a problem with first of all this is not about peter alone he's asking all the disciples They asked everybody. They didn't just single Peter out. Peter responded, and then he addresses Peter. But he's talking to all the disciples. The discussion starts and ends. This whole section starts and ends here with all of the disciples. It's been in front of the group the whole time. And then in verse 20, he charges them to not talk about it. Whatever confession it is that Peter made, this wasn't the beginning of some magic moment with Peter. He told them to stop talking about it. Again, it's Jesus that builds the church, not Peter. So the church will always be governed by Jesus, not Peter. Peter lived and died. Even if you say it's on the shoulders of Peter, if that's what it means, and we'll take that apart in a second. But even if you were to say that, you still have to recognize that it's Jesus that's building the church, not Peter. There's also no historical evidence that Peter ever went to Rome. There is no evidence whatsoever for him to be the bishop of Rome, that he ever even went to Rome. There's also no evidence here or anywhere else that Peter had or intended to have a successor. Peter made disciples, no doubt. Disciples of who? Christ, right? Not himself. So, what's the rock that he builds on? That's one question. There's a few questions in here, so let's take them apart. It's his confession. Yeah, he uses two Greek words here. Okay, the word Peter is Petros. And the word rock, when he says upon this rock, it's a similar word, Petra. But they have different meanings slightly. Petros is a little rock, like a pebble, something you will hold in your hand. Petra could be a boulder to a mountain. And remember where they are. Caesarea Philippi up near Mount Hermon in this massive mountain or something. Now, I'm not saying he's saying he's going to build it on Mount Hermon. But what I'm saying is he's saying to Peter, you are a rock. You are a little rock. But then he says on this big rock, I'm going to build my church. Or you could say you are a little R-O-C-K. But on this capital R-O-C-K, I'm going to build my church. And I believe, as you said, he's talking about his confession. What's the confession that he made? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. He has identified the Messiah as God. 
as equal to or belonging to God. For one, he's called him the living God. And Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church. The rock, I believe here, is, yes, his confession. It's the confession of who he is. He is the rock. He is the rock. I give you tons on that too. Just, you don't have to go. Just turn, just write them down. Second Samuel 22 verse 47. The Lord lives and blessed be my what? Know the song? This is a hymn that we, I grew up singing. Blessed be my rock and the exalted, and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. Plain as can be. Psalm 95 1. Oh, come let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Psalm 61, verse 1. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth, I call you. I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. This is my favorite. Deuteronomy 32, 17 and 18. He says, they sacrificed to demons that were no gods. Little g. To gods, little g. They had never known. To new gods, little g, that had come along recently, whom your fathers had never even dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, gave birth to you. And you forgot the God who gave you birth. So he literally saying the rock is God there. Literally saying it. He's saying you were unmindful of the rock that bore you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. In fact, my translation even capitalizes the word rock there. Psalm 89, which is a messianic psalm. It's about David, but it's also about the Messiah. It says in verse 24, My faithfulness and my steadfastness, God speaking, my steadfast love shall be with him, Messiah, and in my name shall his horn or his kingdom or his rule be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation." I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Deuteronomy 32, in, back in verse 4. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and, and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Two more. Isaiah 48:21. This is recalling when they were in the desert and they were wandering and... It says, they did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and water gushed out. Now, why did I single that one out? Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4, they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Outright links Jesus to that same rock that we've been talking about all the time. Paul does. Links Jesus to that same rock all the time. Peter, the little rock, just like Paul did, has correctly identified the big rock. You know what I'm saying? The capital rock. And that's what the church is going to be built on. On Jesus, not on Peter. On Jesus and the confession of who he is. He's the rock. He's the chief cornerstone. It's all built on him. Scripture is full of that. So what are the keys to the kingdom? Well, there's a lot of debate about that. Um, this is where I lean on that one. Context here is his church. Don't forget that. Context is he's going to build his church. That's what he's talking about. Context is he's going to build his church right here. Keys to the kingdom go to Peter. Peter, and it is Peter. It's not the disciples. It's Peter in this case. 
What did keys do? Open doors. And what else? Lock doors. Open the doors and lock doors. And the kingdom, if the kingdom is a body of believers or a church in this context, he opens doors and he closes doors in a sense. Peter's the first person to preach to the Jews. Acts chapter 2. He's the first one to do it. And not the first person to ever preach, but the first person to preach to the Jews. And as a result, the Holy Spirit falls. That's the ceiling of the church. If you don't have the Holy Spirit in you like some churches teach, then you are not part of the church, my friend. That is what it means to be part of the body of Christ, is to have the Holy Spirit seal you. Ephesians 1 is crystal clear. So in Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches to the Jews, the Holy Spirit falls. In Acts chapter 8, Philip preaches to the Samaritans, and they claim to believe, and even are baptized, but they don't receive the Holy Spirit because they don't really believe entirely. So the disciples send from Jerusalem, they send down to the Samaritans, Peter. Peter prays preaches and lays hands on them, and then the Holy Spirit falls. Then, Peter, later on in Acts chapter 10, Peter again is sent to Cornelius, who is a Gentile. And when he preaches to the people in Cornelius' house, the Holy Spirit falls and descends on them. Jews, Samaritans, Gentiles, ends of the earth, you could say. Peter opened the door to all three of those. Now, once the door was open, it stayed open. Once the door was open, the disciples come in behind and make more disciples and share the gospel. And the prison, I mean, the Holy Spirit falls on all those who believe. But Peter did have the keys to the kingdom in that sense because he opened each. God used him, but he opened each of those doors to those people groups. And unfortunately, this is where, again, you get the jokes about Peter standing at the gates of heaven. St. Peter at the gates of heaven. Well, it comes from this thing, but that's not the case. It does bring up the gates of hell. What are gates of hell that won't stand against it? What are the gates of hell? Let me ask this. We ask what are keys? What are gates? What do gates do? They can do both. They can keep you in and they can keep people out. But predominantly a gate is a defensive, defensive structure. And the picture here is hell can't keep the kingdom of God from coming. Remember where they're standing too. Perhaps at this cave by what is referred to then as the gates of hell itself what happened to people if you went into that water and drowned die right what he's saying is hades the place of the dead it's hades it's not outright hell the place of the dead can't prevail against the church Remember, context of the church, when he says the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In other words, don't think of the gates of hell as being the lake of fire. Think of the gates of hell as being the bars of death or the, the, chain, the, the gates to the place of the dead, the access point to the place of the dead. He's saying death cannot hold you if you are part of the church. Even death will not prevail against the church. Well, that's important to know because what's he fixing to do? Die. And context is going to take you there, too. He says another thing. He says that whatever you bind in heaven will be bound in heaven, loose in heaven, loose, loose on earth. What does it mean to bind and loose? Well, some say that means you can bind demons. Well, if that's true, does it also mean you can loose demons? You can't have half of that. You're not binding demons. Binding and loosening. Again, what's the context? The church, the establishment of the church. The context and establishment of the church, Jesus is establishing it, and he's saying that what you, you will be able to bind and you will be able to loose. 
Bind means to forbid. Loose means to permit. Listen to me. If you read Jewish text at all, Talmud, Mishnahs, any rabbinical teaching whatsoever, there are thousands of times that they use the phrase, when you bind this or when you loose this. You will bind this, you'll bind him with it when he does this, and you'll loose him when he does this. You'll bind her when she does this, but you'll loose her for this. You can loose for this, but you bind for that. And it's, it's all throughout the text. It's not some wild spiritual thing that Jesus is saying. They would have known exactly what he's getting at. Bind means you're forbidding something. Loose means you're permitting something. And the context is always in a judicial sense. Excuse me. Or a legislation type sense. These disciples are found in the church. They're going to. They are going to make decisions that are huge. For instance, Simon the magician. Peter cursed him. That curse was on earth, but it carried over to heavenly things too. The couple, Ananias and Sapphira, who lied to the Holy Spirit, they were judged to death. Peter called them out. Church discipline, you could even say it. Where do you get the authority to do that? Well, we get it from the Word, but the Word had to get written. So these are the disciples that are going to write the Word. You're talking about government, what you permit and what you don't. And Peter is given the authority here, in a sense, to speak on God's behalf. All of them are. And establish the church with his authority. That's what the New Testament letters, epistles are. And then, basically, it's the Old Testament Word, his gospel teachings, And now what they're going to write. They're not going to add to anything, but they're going to write on that. Now we're bound to their word. We're bound to the word that they wrote, that they came up with. Let's finish up. Verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day and raised. So now from that moment forward, he's outright saying it. Everything just changed from the moment of Peter's confession. Now everything points to the cross. It was all pointing to the kingdom as at hand. Peter's made a confession. Now everything for the rest of the text points, for the rest of your reading, points to the cross and the resurrection. And Peter, verse 22, took him aside and began to rebuke him. Did you ever realize that this was right here? Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you're a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Another reason why we don't need to glorify Peter for his confession, because immediately Peter's the one who Jesus calls Satan. That's heavy, stinking language. I don't think Peter was possessed. I don't think that's what he's doing. I believe that Peter's behaving as Satan did because Satan tempted Jesus. Hey, you don't have to go and die. Just take, kneel to me. I'll give you all the kingdoms. You could take this whole earth right now. You could take the universe right now. There's an easier way. You don't have to do it that way. I think he's remembering that and, and using that kind of language. And listen, we are so guilty of this one. Setting our minds on the things of man. Even if we claim it's a spiritual thing or it's what Jesus wants. We have to be real careful about that. We do that all the time. There was a recent news of a man who uh, wanted to get a $54 million private jet, Jesse Duplantis, and asked his followers for it. It's the fourth one. And he said, if Jesus was here, he wouldn't be riding a donkey. That's why it's in the news. Brand new news. You can go find it yourself. Not so. I don't care what you say Jesus said. There's plenty of things that we set our mind on that are the things of man that are not. And, and I'm, I'm using him as an extreme example, but we do it on little things. 
And I don't think I got to explain that. Verse 24, we're finishing real fast. Then Jesus told his disciples, in that context of Peter saying that, in that context, if anyone would come after me, anyone, Peter, you too, if anybody's going to follow me, you got to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. What does it mean to take up your cross? We've talked about that a bunch. What happened on a cross? Death. It means death. It doesn't mean you got to lay down a burden. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean you got to take up a burden. It means you have to die. You have to climb in your electric chair and follow me. Verse 25, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That is so awesome. He's talking about his kingdom. He's saying death is the entrance to the kingdom of life. Think about that. Death is the entrance to the kingdom of life. That's what he's saying. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come. With his angels, the day's going to come in the glory of his father. Get that in the glory of his father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Justice is going to come, but that's not the plan yet. He's saying that day will come. And by the way, it says he's going to come with his angels, which is telling you again who he is. They're his angels. Verse 28. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here today that will not taste death until they see the son of man coming in his Kingdom coming means approaching. He doesn't give a time here. He's just saying that it's it's approaching and it has been approaching since the resurrection. So what does he mean that some people are not going to taste death? And I know I, I skimmed over that really quick was a prophet of man, but we've talked about that a lot. So I think you guys get it. So we're in with this. What does it what does it mean that he says some of you won't taste death? Well, there's some debate about it. If you look at Luke and Mark's account of the same story, it gives a little bit of understanding, but not much. Some say that it means that it could mean the resurrection of Christ and his resurrection body, that they're going to see that and his ascension, that there'll be people there that he says, not there'll be you guys will see this. Now, somebody did die because he said not everybody here is going to imply that not everybody here would see it. Who died? Who didn't see? If there were only 12 there, who didn't see his ascension? Judas didn't. Some say it's a reference to the very next chapter, because in the next chapter is the transfiguration. And they see him like in in holiness. Either way, he obviously doesn't mean that nobody's that they're not going to die until his second coming. You know, obviously, that's not what he means, because they're all long gone. and He hasn't come yet. So let me end with this. I once heard a preacher Say that if you're on trial for it, would there be enough evidence to convict you for your affiliation to Jesus? Y'all probably heard that before. Many people in this world, that's reality. I mean, they are threatened with conviction for their confession of who Jesus is. And you can tell me you believe Jesus is Lord. You can tell me you believe Jesus is God. But Jesus is not asking, who do you say to me? Jesus is saying, who do you say day to day? Who do you tell people that I am? Is there somebody that I can get on the phone that would say, oh, yeah, he can tell you who Jesus is. I'll tell you who he says Jesus is because he tells me all the time. Or I'll tell you who he thinks Jesus is because she tells me all the time. In their own words, this is what the creed of Nicaea said. I'm done here. He said, we believe in one. This is what they came up with. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty maker of all visible and invisible. And we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten from the Father, only begotten, that is, 
from the Father's same substance, light from light, true, true God from true God, begotten, not made of one substance with the Father. Through him were made all things, both in heaven and on earth. For us and for our salvation, he came down, was incarnate, and became human. He suffered, rose again on the third day, ascended into the heavens, and is coming to judge the living and the dead. And we believe in the Holy Spirit. But those who say there was once when he was not. And before he was begotten, he was not. And that he was made out of nothing. Or who would affirm that the Son is a different substance. Or that he is mutable and changeable. These, the Catholic and apostolic church, anathemizes or excommunicates or calls heretics. That's a heck of a definition. So I would ask as we finish here, who do you say that he is? Who do you tell people that he is? Um, I'm going to pray, but I'm going to tell you guys, we're going to stop right there. Um, I love y'all, but I figured that's the best place to stop because we got to the verse finally. I was going to stop last week, but y'all made me pinch on. And then I saw chapter 16. I was like, well, that's the verse I've been holding, so I'm going to keep it. But I'll still be here. I'll still be around. I'll still do podcasts um, as soon as I can get them back up and going or keep them moving. I love you guys. I have loved every second of doing this since 2010 or 11, something like that. I don't know. A long time. If you ever want to sit down and talk about the word, tell me. I'll do that anytime. I don't have to have a microphone for that. My favorite thing to do in the whole wide world. I don't have to have a stage to do it either. So, uh, and again, I'm still here. Molly and I will be here at least a little while longer, but, um, we'll keep you up to date when we're moving. Also, many of you replied to that email I sent out. If you want to stay in touch with us on what we're doing and what's going on, I'm migrating away from that email into a, a different one that's going to be just for that. And it will be more consistent once it starts. I haven't started it yet, but it'll be regular. So you'll know what's up. All right. Let me close this in prayer.